you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 10? I know you're so shocked we're in Matthew, as if there's no other books in the Bible. But we've been in Matthew for quite a while as we're walking through this series about what it means to follow Jesus. And we've been in a, a series within that series about God's mission and Jesus' mission in our world. And so actually, believe it or not, we're going to conclude that portion of, of the series today by looking at verse 32 to 42, uh, those verses in Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to talk about the cost of mission. Now, I know that, uh, that you obviously, even this morning, you've seen that, you know, that there's, there's a recurring theme that keeps coming up. And that is embracing Jesus' mission, living that out in our lives, doing, looking at that globally and what that looks like. And so this morning, as we, we kind of come to a conclusion of this, I want you to, to understand that, that when you and I say yes to Jesus... We may be thinking, okay, I, I know I've got issues, I've failed, I'm a sinner, that I'm desperate, I need Jesus. And so we cry out to him and we, we want to surrender our lives to him. But we have to understand in surrendering to him, we're surrendering not only so he covers our sin and he saves us, but we're, we're surrendering him because he's not saved us to sit, he's saved us to be on his mission. And that's part of reaching other people and that's part of sharing the gospel, that's part of living that all out. And so understanding that, what we're going to talk about this morning is that there, there comes a cost in following Jesus. There comes a cost with his mission. And that means if we're going to be aligned with what he's doing as individuals, as a church family, it's going to hurt. It's, we're going to feel the impact of it. It's going to mean that we have to rearrange who we are and, and who, what we're doing and make sure that we're in alignment with that. Now, I, I, don't tend, I tend to shy away from these kind of illustrations, but it, it seems to fit that so many times, you know, we'll have kind of the war analogy when it comes to God's mission. Uh, we're not, the, the only enemy is, is Satan. People are not the enemy. Do you understand that? But so many times, like, let's go fight the war. Well, who are we going to slay? Jesus already defeated Satan on the cross, so that one's taken care of. But, but when you talk about war in terms of mission, there are a lot of similarities between it and the mission that Jesus has and what it requires of those who participate in it. So, for example... World War II, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the question was, how do we respond? How do we respond? I mean, obviously, the devastating of, of loss of life and just the, the nation was, was shaken by the fact that we were, we were bombed, that we were attacked. And so there, there's different ideas and strategies. And, and one of the, obviously, the, the idea that came up initially was a response that came through the avenue of, we know, James Doolittle, who was a colonel at the time, became a general eventually, who led a group of men who were pilots to fly, and they were known as Doolittle's Ra- Raiders. And this is what we decided to do initially. Japan had told their people that there's no way the United States can ever make Tokyo. They can never come and bomb us. We're safe. We can go and do it then, but they don't have the ability to do that. Well, when you tell an American they can't do something, what do they usually do? They try to do it. So our response was, to form a mission that was all in, to just, in the minds of the Japanese leadership, tell them, oh, yes, we can. We can make Tokyo. We can make Japan. We can get to you, even though you think we can't. So the mission was formed around that objective. So they knew that it was going to take a lot to do this. So at the time, we had aircraft carriers. Nowhere what we have today, but we have that technology at that time. But only fighter pilots or fighter planes would fly off those. Well, they got this crazy idea. Why don't we take bombers and fly them off an aircraft carrier. Anybody seen the movie Pearl Harbor? It kind of goes through that, that process. So, but in order to, to do that, they had to find the leanest bomber, and they had to make sure that it was light. So they picked the B-25. But to get a bomber to take off a very short runway in the middle of the ocean, they literally had to strip it down to nothing, to like the bare minimum that, so it could fly. So they did things like, literally, they gutted the interior 
So much so that even like the tail gunner, which had two dual machine guns, they removed the machine guns because they weigh too much, and they put in black broomsticks in, it, in their places just to make it look like there were actually machine guns on the back of the, the plane. But there weren't any. And when those planes actually eventually, they got out into the Pacific Ocean, they got far enough, they took off the aircraft carrier. All that they had was the minimum that it required to fly, and internally they had five crew members, they had a larger, what they called an internal bladder for extended amount of fuel, and they each had four 500-pound bombs, and that's all that they had. And the strategy was this. They knew that they only had enough fuel to get to Japan, and then, after dropping their ordnance, to continue on to China. They did not have enough fuel to turn around and come back to the carriers. Plus, a B-25 could not land on an aircraft carrier. So these people who committed to this mission knew we are stripping everything down to the bare minimum. We are flying a one-way mission that we have no way of getting back to. And there's a really good chance that we may not come out of this alive. And they all said yes. See, I don't know the names, and many of us don't even know the names of those pilots or those, those crew members. And a lot of them did lose their lives either in the process or they were captured by the Japanese. Even when they reached the Chinese mainland, China mainland, they actually got captured by Japan, all kind of stuff. If it weren't for those pilots, the outcome of the war could have been very different. But they bought into the mission. They believed in the mission. Therefore, they were all in. And the same thing is true when you and I say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to his mission, which means as individuals of followers of Jesus, as a church family, we make sure that we strip away all the stuff that might be a hindrance or something that would get in the way of ultimately the mission. We've, you've maybe heard the term missional, which finally now has made its way into the dictionary. It's just a church buzzword that's come up in the last decade. But when you describe what Doolittle Raiders did, that is missional. Everything they did aligned itself behind the mission, the objective. That's what we have to do as individuals. That's what we have to do as a church family. And that means there's things that have to be stripped away. There's things that have to be left behind. There's a cost that has to be paid. And what are we paying the price for? For somebody's eternity. For somebody's opportunity to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. Nothing is more important than that. For God to reconcile the world through his people in Jesus so that they can be together with God someday forever. That's the mission. That's what God calls us to. So with that understanding, let me read verse 32 to verse 42 of Matthew 10, and then we'll talk about what Jesus asks us to strip away. Verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous man or a righteous person uh, as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cold cup of water to one of the little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. 
Those are really hard words, aren't they? When you just, just I don't know if you've ever read that passage before, but just let it, let it settle in. We'll talk about this. Jesus is talking about things that almost seem contrary to what we think Christianity is about. He's talking about relationships that are going to be divided. He's talking about, in a sense, treating your family relationships as though you dislike them or hate them as you favor Jesus. He's talking about some crazy stuff. And so I want to talk about that. What what is he asking us to strip away in terms of our own life, our own mission-driven, focused life? What is he asking us to strip away and prepare for? Let me talk about the cost of Jesus and his mission. The first thing, look at verse 32 and 33. The first thing that Jesus says you're going to have to strip off your plane, that you're going to have to get rid of, that you can't take with you, is your own reputation. You can't rely on your reputation. Jesus says, listen, whoever acknowledges me before others, he says, I'll acknowledge you before my father. But if you disown me, I'll disown you. Now, when we usually think that, we think, well, I got that one down. I'll say, okay, Jesus is Lord. I just have to say it. As long as I say it, then everybody knows that Jesus is Lord. That's not what the word acknowledge means. Acknowledge doesn't just mean verbally to kind of give Jesus the A-OK. Hey, all right, you're good. We're good, right? I acknowledge you. And then, you know, I get in at the end because you'll acknowledge me. It's not this kind of deal he's working out. The word acknowledge actually means to fully identify with. So what Jesus is saying is, when you, if you acknowledge me, you are fully identifying that, that you belong to me, that your primary identity is not what you have done, but it's who you are in me. You fully acknowledge, you fully embrace what it is to follow me, be known by me, live out everything that I am about. It's, it's about what I want to do in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what acknowledge means. That's a little heavy. But he's saying, listen, if, I've, you, if you've come into my family because of my death on the cross, the ownership of your life has now changed from you to me. Therefore, that's the process of acknowledging. And if you and I would just think about that for the moment, how does that practically work out in our life? See, we all have an identity. We all want to have our unique identity. And we are, all are created uniquely by God. But when it comes to the bottom line is what are we known by? What are we known for? What is our reputation? What is our identity? Many times we gravitate to different things in life, depending the context that we're in. So if we're in a work environment, we're known by what we do. So we're a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or an attorney or a police officer or whatever we do. That becomes kind of our identity. And that, in that context, that's what people know us by. In my context, like, for example, I'm a pastor, so people call me pastor. But what trumps our role, and even for some of us, if you're, you have kids, your mom, your dad, or your grandpa, or your grandma, or whatever, and those are things that people label on us, and those are wonderful things. But the challenge is, if those become the only things that identify who we are, then we're not following, fully acknowledging who Jesus is in our life. Because if we're living out a life that only people know us by our profession or our our relational role with our family, then what we're lacking is this ability to live out our faith so authentically that people look at us and say, they must know Jesus. You know, the word Christian was not given by the church. They didn't, you know, Paul and and Peter and the apostles didn't get together and say, hey, what's a great name for us? Let's come up with a name. Let's have a t-shirt. Let's brand it. It would be really cool. They didn't do that. Actually, it says in the book of Acts, in Antioch was the first time that people who followed Jesus were called Christians. Literally transmitted, it means little Christs. That's what they were. And it was people from the outside that looked at them and sometimes even mockingly said, oh, they're a Christian. How did they know that? How come they didn't say, hey, that's, that's an attorney over there, or that's a lawyer, or that's a grandfather? They didn't say that. What, what did they say? They said, oh, they're Christians. Why? Because they could see it in their lives. 
They could see the evidence. And by the way they lived their life, they were acknowledging who Jesus is. They had fully identified. And that's one of the things in our culture. If you and I fully identify with Jesus, living out his mission isn't about this programmatic agenda of the church that, okay, well, we're a church that does mission, so I go to church and do my mission, or I serve with the church mission. Mission becomes life. It's everywhere. It's everything. It's every relationship. It's every experience that we have is God working through us to reconcile people back to him through Jesus. It's all who we are. And that's because our reputation is not based on us. It's on who Jesus is. It's on if honestly, if if we're going to acknowledge him, people have to know that we belong to him, not because we say it necessarily or because we have something on our shirt that demonstrates it. But the way we live our life, it should be a demonstration that people see around us. Second thing that Jesus says you need to strip away is you're going to have to be willing to part with social peace. Let me explain what I mean by using that term. Jesus says in verse 34, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let me just take a quick question. Does that sound like Jesus is talking out both sides of his mouth? Anybody recall what one of the names of Jesus is? Prince of Peace. You're like, wait a second. You're the Prince of Peace, but you didn't come to bring peace? Are you crazy? That's what it sounds like. What Jesus is referring to is the peace that Jesus came to bring was peace between us and God. That's what the peace he brought. The the battle was between our sin nature and our walking away and rejecting God and God. That's the peace that Jesus brought to bring. And that ultimately, when that, that comes into our lives and that transforms us, it starts to influence our relationships. But what happens is because we live in a world just like us, we're, we're full of sin and selfishness, that there becomes this division between following Jesus and choosing to reject him. See, Jesus uses that, that, the phrase, he says, he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And he's not talking of a sword that you take into battle, you know, a weapon that you're going to use against your enemy. He's talking about a sword that was used to divide in a way that would establish allegiance So it's like, this is the dividing line. You choose which side you're going to be on. That's the kind of sword you're talking about. So therefore, when there's all this harmony and peace and unity, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, and he's cutting it in half, and he's saying, you're in or you're out. You choose to follow me, or you choose to go your own way when it comes to him and his mission. You know, there's a lot of analogies in Scripture about you and I, when we commit to following Jesus, it's like this marriage. That's why the church, the people who are God's people, are known as the bride of Christ. There's this, there's, and in the end, it talks about that there'll be this wedding feast, this wedding as we're ultimately reunited, united with Jesus. And that's a great analogy of, about how you and I choose to truly acknowledge and truly give our allegiance to Jesus. Now, those of you who are married, you can understand this dynamic. When you are single, you live a single life. And that is, you are, your schedule, what you do, is ultimately determined by you. Your relationships, the depth of your relationships, that's all your own thing. When you get married, you are now merging your relationships together in a way that now you can no longer relate the same way with others as you did before. Because now you have a relationship with a spouse that should be more powerful and more valuable than any other relationship in your life. And that means there are times and places where you know you're going to have to choose your spouse over a friendship. And that's hard. Kim and I saw this, this firsthand when we first got married. And this really had nothing to do with Kim's allegiance. It was more of her telling somebody else that they needed to realize there was a dividing line. 
Within the first few months of our marriage, she had some, you know, we both had friends that we always hung out with. And and when we got married, obviously, you're not hanging out all the time with your friends. If you are, you probably have a few issues in your relationship. You're hanging out with your spouse. Well, one of her friends that she had for a number of years, he thought it would be good to keep calling her after we got married. And he would call and he would, he would ask to talk to Kim. And the first time I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. And so they talked for a little bit. And then like the next day he called again. And I thought, I don't know if I feel so good about this. And then the third day he called again and he just keeps on calling. And I could tell Kim felt uncomfortable with this. And finally I said, listen, honey, I said, I know you're uncomfortable with this, but I, I'm going to ask you to do something because I know you need to do it and he needs to know it. You need to tell him to stop calling. Tell him he's a great guy, but tell him you're married now. And because you're married, he's got no right to you because you've made a commitment to me. And she's like, absolutely. And so she did. The next time he called, say, listen, you, you can't keep calling me. She goes, our relationship's different now. I'm married. You're still a friend, but I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to talk on the phone with you because I've chosen to align myself with my husband. Now, he wasn't too happy about it. All right. My win, his loss. Sorry. I win. <laughs> She married me. I got a ring to prove it, okay? But it's the same thing when you and I choose to follow Jesus. There are going to be relationships that you and I have that you're going to have to make a decision. Jesus is saying, listen, here comes the sword of division. It's coming right here. You're going to have to make a decision. Do you choose that or do you choose me? And that creates tension because he's asking us to be all in. And there's a third thing he asks us to, to get rid of and discard. And this, I'm telling you, This passage is getting get any easier as we move on. Because then Jesus says in verse 35 to 37, he says, you need to be willing to give up relational peace. Let me explain what he's talking about. If you read the, we won't read those verses again, but 35, 36, and 37, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about family. He's saying, listen, you're not worthy of me unless you choose to reject family and accept me. Does that sound contrary to what we've been taught? It's like, wait a second, you're saying, don't value my kids, don't value my spouse, don't value my father, don't value my daughter. What he's saying is, listen, he's using this extreme example that our affection and our love and our commitment to Jesus should be so profound that our family relationships in comparison should look like hate. That's what he's saying. That we so value what he's doing, it looks as though we hate our family, even though we don't. He's not saying you have to hate them literally as in you have to have anger in your heart that you want to kill them. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is in this comparison, you need to make sure that your family never outweighs your commitment to me and my mission in life. That's hard for us. Not just in the church culturally. This is a hard one for us. Because we all, if you have kids, I mean, one of the goals you have is to be a good parent. And you know if you're a good parent, if you get a good kid, at least we think that way all the time. It's like it all rides on us. There is this person called the Holy Spirit who does work in our kids, by the way. But we, we, have, we take this weight on, and we want our kids to be the good kids, and so we invest in that. And what happens is I, I've watched it happen in a number of people's lives, and I've fought in my own life, and Kim and I have fought to make sure that our kids, although we love them, they don't become idols to us. And I know I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. But there's a tendency for sometimes our children to be so important and so valuable to us that they are the driving force in our life. Jesus is not. They dictate our schedule. They dictate our budget. They dictate what we do and don't do in mission and church. They are the driving force. Why? Because we want them to be happy. We want them to be well-rounded. We want them to be good kids. So we have to do everything for them. And they become the focus. And that's, I believe, what Jesus is talking about here. When they become the focus and mission and following him takes a second 
second place or get, get kicked to the back seat. Then we're now in that place where we're, we're now, what are we doing? We're not acknowledging him anymore. In a sense, we're, we're disowning him. I know it sounds really strong. But just for, here's an example in our culture. I think some of it is keeping up with the Joneses. We feel like we're bad parents because somebody else is doing so much more for their kids. Thus the invention of the minivan. Seriously. The minivan has impacted our culture tremendously. You know what the minivan is? It's a house on wheels. That's what it is. Look at it. What can you do in your minivan? You know minivans have now? You pop up table in the middle. Dinner table on wheels. Guess what else they have? Televisions. Right? And with the amount of power we put in minivans, you probably could cook a full meal in your minivan if you wanted to. You never have to go home. Why? Because home's on wheels. Why? Because it's so important to get little Susie from point A to point B and little Johnny to make sure he's not late for his soccer practice. Right? Now, Soccer and ballet and all that. Okay, it's not bad, okay? Hear me. I'm not saying that. But there's a balance. And I've watched it. We, we, we get stuck in this and we just go, go, go. And what takes a second place to that is our personal mission with other people because we're too busy to engage anybody and then our mission that God's driving to in the body of Christ of what he's calling us to do and risk and rearrange our schedule and our lives. Kim and I have fought this with Courtney and Jordan. We've tried to balance. We want them. I mean, they both have played sports. They've been involved in extracurricular. But we've always drawn a line and said, listen, when push comes to shove, what God is doing in us and through the church always is going to be the priority. And that's why when it comes to mission, it's not that, okay, I don't have to, I'm not going to take my kids to do this thing. It's actually when it comes to mission, bring your kids along with you. I don't care... There's certain ages I know that you think, well, can my kid be exposed to that? I don't know I want to do that. Listen, Courtney and Jordan have grown up going into places where most parents are saying, what are you doing taking your kids there? And I've watched my kids be transformed. You saw my daughter. Some of you don't even know her. She's standing up. She's going to Haiti. She's been bugging Kim and I for like seven years, eight years. I want to go. I mean, maybe longer than 10 years. She was, Dad, I want to go to Africa. I want to go see what God's doing. And she's, why? Because she, even at a local level and at a young age, it was infused in her. What is the most important thing in life? It's what God is doing in the world. It's what God is doing in our community. It's what God is doing through us. Your kids will be transformed if you dial back on all of what they think you think they need and give them what Jesus really wants them to have. Serve together. Your child can walk into a laundromat with you. The majority of the ministries at the Dream Center, your child can come with you. You can go serve at the Samaritan Center with your child. It will change them. And it will realign you to say, okay, I can say no to a few of these things because I realize I have no time left for what God's really wanting to do in me and through me and through my kids. And again, making Jesus the one that we acknowledge, that Jesus is the one that we have allegiance to ultimately. Moving on from there, the, the fourth thing that Jesus says you're going to need to cut out and you're going to leave, leave behind is something that we all deal with, comfort. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is the cross is the symbol, at least especially in Jesus' day and age, when he used the term cross, everybody knew he was talking about. The cross is a place of suffering, humiliation, and death. And he's saying, listen, if you're not willing every day of your life to suffer humiliation and pain and discomfort to the point that you may actually have to be willing to lay your life on the line for me, then what does he say? You're not worthy. This is one of the things I love to go to the scripture and go to Jesus because I've, had, I've said things like this before and people get mad at me. It's like, don't get mad at me. Jesus said this. You and I have to come to grips with it. That means that you and I have to battle one of the greatest challenges that we have 
and that is that we don't like to be uncomfortable. All of us. I hate this part of my life. I'll confess, I make decisions every day based on my comfort because I don't want to be uncomfortable. Every decision, every time we get up, and it's not to say that you and I have to live horrible lives ultimately in discomfort at every moment, but you and I have to be willing to make decisions that may lead to discomfort because in our lives, every decision we make usually has to do with how are we comfortable. Think about this. We make that decision when we get up in the morning. Is it too hot or is it too cold in our house? We adjust the thermostat. Why? Because we don't want to be uncomfortable. We make decisions about the kind of house we want to live in, if we can afford it, or the car we want to drive. Why? Because we want to be comfortable. We think about all these things, and comfort drives us. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're going to really follow me, there's going to be lots of times where you're going to have to say, you know what? Comfort, discomfort. Following Jesus means discomfort. I'll choose that. That's hard. And why would Jesus ask us to do that? Because of the bigger picture. The mission of God in the world is to reconcile everyone and creation back to God through Jesus so that all of humanity can experience what God created them for, which was to be with him forever. That's the overarching purpose of why we exist. That's what Jesus' mission is. And in order for us to get there, it's going to require that we're uncomfortable. If we're going to follow Jesus and be like Jesus, then we have to be willing to embrace what Jesus has walked through. And that means being uncomfortable for the sake of other people. Middle schoolers and high schoolers went to camp last week, and I know Courtney and Jordan were telling me they heard the story about a man named John Harper. Some of you might have known John Harper's name. Very famous story that came out of the sinking when the Titanic went down. Um, Obviously, you hear lots of heroic stories and lots of things and Lots of stories of people being selfish and all this dynamic that was going on. Obviously, we see the movies that were made about it. But John Harper is a very interesting story because John Harper was on the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. He was coming over from Europe, and he was on his way to Chicago, ultimately, because he was going to be the next pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And as he was on the ship, and obviously the ship started to go down because he had lost his wife earlier on in his life. He was a widower, and it was just him and his six-year-old daughter. So when they were getting to the lifeboats, they gave him a spot on a lifeboat because that's his daughter. His daughter only had her dad. But he took his six-year-old daughter and he puts her on a lifeboat and he says, I'm not taking the seat. And they looked at him like, why aren't you taking the seat? And the reason he wasn't taking the seat is because he looked around and what he saw was he didn't just see people that were going to perish physically. He saw that people were going to perish spiritually. And he knew he was going to die. But before he died... He got to every person he could get to to ask them, do you know Jesus? And if they said no, then he would explain to them. And if they wanted to hear, he would tell them. And if they rejected, he would go to the next person. He did that on the ship. He did that in the water. And even to the point where he was swimming in the water before hypothermia kicked in and he died from person to person, floating on the wreckage, saying, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And actually, one point, somebody rejected his invitation, and he took off his life vest, and he said, because you've rejected this, you're going to need this more than I do. And he gave it to the man. We know these stories are true because there was a man who was floating on the wreckage, and John Harper swam, swam up to him twice before he died. And the second time, the guy thought, because this guy's persistent, I better say yes. And he did, and he survived. And he made a commitment to follow Jesus because of John Harper's sacrifice that said, you know what, I'd be willing to give all of my life, all my, I'll take on discomfort, I'll take on death. Why? So that somebody else might know Jesus. Why? Because John Harper knew when he died, it would be gain. When he died, he would go and see Jesus. 
But his last striving effort in this world was to save as many people as he could. Now, you and I may never be in that situation. We're on a sinking ship. But every day of our life, we are surrounded by people who will someday die physically. But what's even more devastating is that they may die spiritually and be separated from God. That has to drive us. That has to drive us beyond our comfort zone to our discomfort zone so that God can use us. We only have one life. And God's not going to look at us someday and pat us on the back and say, wow, you did a really good job being comfortable. We don't get kudos for comfort. We have to be willing to surrender it and to give it up. And then the final three things going on as we work our way through the passages, those are things Jesus says, listen, you're going to have to get rid of these. You're going to have to cut them off. You're going to have to unload them off the plane because they're not going to make it. And then he ends with three requirements. He says, this is what you're going to have to do in order to really serve my mission and understand the cost that's coming your way. The first thing he says in verse 39 is he says, you need to be willing to lose your life to discover life. Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Again, that sounds opposite. Because we're taught and we're told what? You've got to go for it. You've got one life to live. Live it to the fullest. Do what you want to do. Achieve what you want to achieve. And you'll be successful and people will think you're great and you'll be fulfilled. Jesus is saying the opposite. Live for me. Live for others. Be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to let go of your hopes and your dreams and you'll be fulfilled. Does that sound like backwards? It is. It's backwards to the culture that we live in. But the only thing that fulfills the human soul is to be used by what God purposed you to be created for. Created for his good works. That's what he purposed, for you to accomplish his purpose, his mission, to see his kingdom extended through your life. That's why you and I are alive. Now, we happen to take on the roles in different careers and occupations and relational contexts. We take those on, but our primary goal, our primary reason for being alive is to fulfill that purpose. That's why we're still here. But that means you and I have to be willing to let go of the things that we think will bring us the most happiness. You know, if, 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 if we took a poll right now, or even if we took a poll in our city, and we say, name the top five things that you said, if these were true of your life, you would be happy. Most of us would not include God's mission and sacrifice and possibly death. That wouldn't be the top of the list. That might be like number 99. But that's what Jesus is saying. That's why you read through the book of Acts and look at a bunch of radical, crazy people who chose to follow Jesus and face death all the time, and some of them did die for him, and yet you could see joy ongoingly. Paul's one of them. That guy was more persecuted, tormented, tortured and eventually killed and he writes the book of philippians and talks about how his joy is overwhelming what how's that possible because paul got in on a secret that sometimes we ignore he let go of his life he said my life's not about me anymore i died a long time ago when jesus embraced me and brought me into his family i died the old way what i wanted that died back then now what's left is christ living through me that's what he calls us to see what happens when you and i hang on so tightly to life we actually crush the very things that we think are going to give us happiness. They don't bring us happiness. When Courtney was about four years old, she was in the backyard playing, and my daughter loves, she was very investigative, and she always getting into stuff, and, and uh, I love the fact she was never afraid of dirt. And so she was out playing in the dirt and playing in the backyard, and, and she discovered snails. And she was enamored with snails. She loved them. In fact, on a number of occasions, she would refer to them as her friends. She loved them. And so... One day I went out in the backyard and she was telling me about her friends. And when she said friends, at first I'm thinking, is there somebody else in the backyard that we let in that I didn't know about? And she said, no, Dad, I have my friend in my hand. She goes, Dad, I want you to see him. 
I'm like, okay. And so I'm excited to see Courtney's friend. And so she opens up her hand, and what used to be a snail was still there, but it was no longer a snail. It was green and slimy and crushed and dead. And it was dripping off her hand. And my little four-year-old looks up and she goes, Dad, what happened? She said, I was trying to hang on to my friend. I said, Courtney, I said, you were squeezing tight. And she goes, yeah, I didn't want him to get, get away. She was afraid that a snail was going to outrun her somehow. <laughs> so she's hanging on to the snail and she's squeezing it so tightly that she crushed it in her hand and didn't even know it. And the very thing that was her friend is the very thing that she killed, is the very thing that she lost. And you and I do that every day. We try to avoid death. We run in fear of discomfort, not thinking somehow that God can sustain us through all of that. And so what we revolve around and our lives are surrounded by, how do I maintain, sustain, keep myself safe so that somehow I can live till 80, 90, 100 years old and have a full life? Who determines when we live and die? God does. If he wants us to die at 40, we're going to die at 40. If he wants us to die at 80, we'll die at 80. If we're serving his mission and we're following him, he determines that. We can trust that. And we can live that out. And second thing that you and I have to come to grips with that we're going to have to, it's going to be a requirement, is we have to learn to represent God instead of ourselves. So Jesus talks about this concept of when somebody welcomes you, they're not really welcoming you. If you are following me, Jesus says, they're going to be welcoming me. In other words, what he's saying is, just as Jesus was the representation of who God is, and he represented the Father, then when people welcome you and I in this life, guess who they're welcoming? Guess who we're representing? We're representing Jesus. And that's either really good news or really bad news. Someone's thinking, I don't want to represent Jesus. Are you kidding me? I don't even come close. But there's something about that to be excited about that, that Jesus, in his great wisdom, has chosen us, which is crazy, to be his primary avenue of representation of who God is in our world. He chose us. He said, by the Holy Spirit that lives in you, you're going to be a representative of me. So when you and I come into a context, we represent God. We don't represent ourselves. We don't represent our reputation. We don't come in and we hand out our business card. No, we walk in as what? Someone who's representing Jesus. And why that is that so important? Because God has chosen to use his church to demonstrate who he is in the world. That's us. So we don't represent ourselves. It's, it's representing him. And now you and I have to think about that. If that's true, that means every context that I'm in, I'm representing him. Now just for a moment, take yourself outside of yourself and think about who you are and what you're demonstrating to people. When you walk into a situation, when you go into work, when you're at school, when you're at home and you're in your neighborhood and you're having connections with people, what do people see about you? And what does that say about who Jesus is? If you were the only person on the planet that was representing Jesus and your friends and your family only had you as the only representation of what God looks like, or who Jesus is, what would they see? Think about it for a moment. Would they see someone who's sold out and following Jesus, who loves people, who's willing to embrace discomfort, who's generous with their resources and their time? Or would they see somebody who's arrogant, self-centered, anxiety-riddled, whatever it is? What would they see? 
Now, hear me, because some of you think, wow, I really need to adjust my behavior to represent. No, you just need to surrender to Jesus more and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you. You and I can't change ourselves. Only God can transform us. And then finally, the final thing Jesus requires of us is in verse 42. He says, you and I have to be willing to care for other followers. So he talks about the mission. I just described the mission as this reconciliation. The process for the mission is called this thing, this thing called discipleship, which Jesus in Matthew 28 says, listen, you're going to go and, and you're going to make disciples of all nations. That's the process that God uses of us making us more like Jesus so that we're reconciled back to God. That's what discipleship is. So what Jesus is saying, let me read verse 42. He says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple? Truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose a reward. What's Jesus talking about? When he uses the word little ones, or the phrase little ones, he's not talking about just children, although it may apply to them. He's talking about those who are fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who are in need spiritually and physically, who need somebody to come along them and help them be reconciled back to God, help them to be discipled. They need somebody to help them follow Jesus more in their life, in every aspect. That's what, that's what giving a cup of water looks like. It's not just the physical, it's the spiritual. It's the whole thing. And what he's saying to us, he's saying to, when you're on my mission, you have this ability to see all that's going around, on around you, to not only help those who don't know me yet, but help those who do know me as they are discipled into following me more. See, you and I have to understand, we are always being discipled, and should always disciple other people. It's this process that somebody walks us through and we lead others in. That's why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example. Why is that important? Because to truly be a disciple and to truly disciple means you and I have to be selfless. That means we have to be able to see the person around us who has the need. And find out how we can help disciple them. And that is that the, it's, it's a shift in our mindset. One of the things that we have to come to grips with, and that's one of the things that I believe that God has orchestrated at so many different levels, our transition with the building is not about a building. It isn't. We've, we've talked about this. Right size is not about finding a church home. We don't have a church home. Our home is in heaven, but we happen to be living here. That's why Paul said, hey, you're strangers and aliens. We're all aliens. You're like, wow, this is getting really trippy. But because we are, we're strangers. This is not our home. Our home is with God. But we understand when we live this out, what we're going to have to come to, to grips with is that I have to care for other people around me and help disciple them because they are in need. And because of that, you and I cannot be focused on ourselves. We have to be focused on other people. Now, let me just give for you, for, for instance, with this. How does this work its way out? We shift the way we think about things. When we walk into any context, especially let's just apply it to church, when we walk into, by the way, this is not church. Look around you. The people you see, that's church. This is a building. So, but when we walk into a gathering like this, I do it too. We are asking a question that we don't even know we're asking. We're asking the question, what's in it for me? We do. We all do it. We all ask the question, what can I get from this moment? And that comes in the form of, is it comfortable? Do I like the worship? Is the temperature right? Am I sitting by people I want to? Is somebody talking really loud? Is there a baby crying in the back? Is Pastor John going to be good? Or is he going to be like offensive? Or is he going to be boring? What am I having for lunch today? Do I really want to drop my kids off? I don't like that classroom. I don't know if I like that teacher either. Is the bath? Oh, the bathrooms are dirty. I, I don't know if I can come back to this church again. 
Anybody ever thought any of the thoughts? Anybody ever want to raise their hand? What is that? That's the opposite of a disciple. You know what that's called? A consumer. And that's what we have to be careful of. Because a consumer can't disciple because they never see beyond themselves. But what if we did it the other way? What if we come together in a gathering? What if we look at church differently and we say this, God has me here, what? To contribute and to answer to the needs of other people. What if we looked at it that way? What if we looked at church like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that because I don't have enough time. It's too difficult. I'm not qualified. Whatever excuses we give and said, you know what? There's somebody in need that God wants to use me to fulfill their need. What if we did it that way? So within our church, community groups. We're talked about community groups. You'll hear more and more about community groups because they are going to become the life force within our church. Because in community groups is where you primarily are discipled, you build relationship, you are accountable, you are cared for, and you serve on mission together. We're going to expand more when we get to January. More and more community groups. All of us make a decision. When you hear about community groups, we all make a decision. Either say, yeah, you know what? I think that would be good for me. Or you say, you know what? I don't have time for that. I don't want people to know my junk. I don't want to waste my time. They don't have childcare. I don't like that leader. Whatever it is. I'm just being honest. This is the internal dialogue that I have. I'm sure you have it too. But with all that being said, we, do we ever ask the question, maybe there's somebody in that community group that God wants me to disciple. Maybe there's somebody that God wants me to build a relationship. Maybe there's something about me being there that's not about me. When it comes to the perfect example, children's ministry. I'm just going to kind of ta- touch on a couple things, and, and we'll, do, we'll close up here in a little bit. Children's ministry. Someone comes to you and says, hey, would you mind serving with kids? Well, I'm not called. Right? Anybody ever use that excuse? Sorry, you are, all of us are called. We're all called to be disciples. So, well, well, and we really don't want to do, well, you know, my schedule's really busy. I, I don't know I have enough time. I'm not qualified. Uh, all the excuses, I, I don't, you know, whatever it is. And, and we never take a step back and say, maybe there's a kid who's a part of our church that me, needs me to disciple them. Maybe there's a child that needs a cup, cup of water. Maybe there's a child I need to invest in. And my, me saying no, what I'm saying is I'm more important than what's going on there or what's going on in their lives. Now, for some of us, it means we have to take a step back and say, okay, I need to reconsider the way of life. If I'm constantly saying no and all I have the ability to do is show up at a gathering on a Sunday morning, then I need to take a step back and say, wait a second. Is that all that Jesus requires of me? Is that I just step foot on church on Sunday morning and that's good enough? I don't think so. Now, when you read through the book of Acts, they're all in. Why? Because we need each other, and God's called us to disciple each other, and to disciple the world, and to reach the world, and that means it's all of us. And as we go through the transition with the building, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. You know why? Because we talked about smaller building, more cramped spaces. Yeah, we will have air conditioning and heating. We'll have those kind of things. We will have running water and electricity. We'll have all those. But it's more than just the building, because where we're getting to is if we are a church that is about God's mission, that means we're all in motion and in movement together. Christianity was never intended to be a spectator sport. And that means that we have installed seat warmers in all the new seats in the new building that will be turned up to 150 degrees. I'm kidding, okay? But you know, one of, one of my, she's, she's up in Oregon, but one of my heroes who was helping facilitate a lot of the mission of our church in Newburgh she would pray every Sunday. This is a woman that sold out to Jesus and her life was about mission and reaching people, impacting people. Her prayer every Sunday was that God make the seats hot. That's what she, every Sunday she'd tell me, I'm praying that God would burn people on the backside to move, 
to be engaged, to be uncomfortable so that they'll move in and they'll engage in God's mission. She prayed that for the seven years that we were there. And we watched people get uncomfortable and finally realized God's called me to something bigger than just attending church, just sitting in a seat. Even though it's scary, it's the adventure and the mission that God has called us to. So let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your pointed words again because, Lord, that's why we're, we're in Matthew. Because, Lord, we, we don't want to rely on our own knowledge. We don't want to rely on our own wisdom or our own experience. We want to hear your words. And when we hear your words, Lord, we know that that forces a response in us. How are we going to handle what you say to us? How are we going to respond? And so I pray that now that your Holy Spirit would work in us because, Lord Jesus, we know, we know how much you love us, how much you love the world, how much you love our city. And I know when you look down on Simi Valley on any given Sunday, Lord Jesus, I know that you know where all the churches are located, you know where all the believers are gathered, but your eyes are so big and your heart so wide that you don't just see Christians or church people or church gatherings. You see a city. You see people who are going to work on a Sunday morning. You see people who are in their yard working. You see people who are sleeping in. You see people who are doing all the normal activities of life. You see all of the people. But then I know, Lord, you look down and when you see the church gathered, you look down and you say, those are my people. Those are the people that I've saved. Those are the people that I'm transforming. Those are the people that someday will be with me forever. But those are the people that I've called and I still keep them in this city and I still keep them on this planet because there's thousands of people in that city that don't know me yet. Lord Jesus, we know that's what you see. And I pray that we would see that as well. That we would not see ourselves as this church that just comes together and then we, we've gone to church. No, Lord, we don't go to church. We are the church. We are your people. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Because we know ultimately, Lord, our life, all of human history, it's not about us. It's about you. It's about what you want to accomplish. It's about what you want to do. It's about bringing honor and glory to you. So, Lord Jesus, would you accomplish that in our lives? Would you allow your spirit to stir up in us a desire to be more than just attenders, more than just passive, more than consumers, more than spectators, but people who embrace you fully in following you and living out your mission in our lives? We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.